Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So Santa Claus is coming to town. Are we not entirely excited about that? I mean, my goodness, he's making a list and he's checking it twice, which means what? I mean, that's, that's good news, right? He's checking it twice. That means he's making sure that you are on the list, right? Because he's coming to town. Isn't that, isn't that what that means? Wait, why is he checking his list twice? It's to find out if you're naughty. or So actually him checking it twice might not be such a good thing for some of you. I mean, maybe that means that uh, maybe you, you won't get on the list. And what does that mean for you then? I mean, are you really sure that you have been nice enough this year to get something good from Santa? I mean, are you really sure? Because you have to ask yourself if you are ready to get what you deserve. I mean, that's the way to really think it through. Because he is checking that list. And it could very well be that you might end up on the other side of that list. Which would certainly be pretty discouraging. Because what if you haven't been nice enough? In fact, it actually is a little bit more challenging than that. What if your definition of nice is different from his? Then what? I mean, what if, what if he thinks that singing Christmas carols puts you on the naughty list? I mean, we know he does if it's before Thanksgiving. And so then what? Like, what if you end up on the naughty list for something like that? And you didn't even know that that... What if it's because you ate too many cookies? You eat too many Christmas cookies and you get on the naughty list. Or, I mean, you've seen the guy, like, he, it might be if you don't eat enough Christmas cookies. Maybe that's it. You see, like, you, you don't really know, do you? It can create a whole lot. Of, what if wearing an ugly Christmas sweater is enough to put you on the naughty list for five years out? It's such a sacrilege to him. He's like, that's it. You're on the list. You're on the list for good. Maybe that's the case. I mean, how do you really know? And if you happen to get on the list, how do you get off? Like, no one's ever explained that to us. Is there a way to actually get off the list? Because, you know, if in fact he is doing all sorts of these things and you're doing these things and you don't really know how you got on, then maybe you, you don't really know how to get off the list. Because you have to remember that he sort of eerily sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. I mean, you can't fake this dude out. Like, he is always watching. Always. A little unnerving. I don't know. What if, in fact, that creates for you a lot of tension with this guy? 
Because you don't really know if you're on the naughty list. You don't know how to get off the naughty list. And you don't really know how bad it is to be on the naughty list. And you think, well, no, 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 we know that. Because if I'm found on the naughty list, you get a lump of coal, right? I mean, that's it. So you're like, ah, so it just it burns the year. You know, I get one, I get one, you know, bad year, I get coal. But, you know, next year I get another shot at not getting coal and getting something I really want. Because it's only coal, right? But why coal? I mean, why do you get a lump of coal? Because, you know, there's, it has to be rich with symbolism. I mean, what do you make with coal? Fire. Well, that's ominous. What is he doing with all of that fire? What is this magically powerful master of the elves going to do with fire? I mean, we already know he largely runs a sweatshop filled with a whole lot of powerless people who are of a different race, by the way, who he works them all year long so that it just at one time of the year he can get all of this glory and popularity. I mean, that does not bode well when you start wondering what he's going to do with all this coal. Actually, there are St. Nicholas traditions throughout Europe and the U.S. which give us a hint. Our versions have been very, very sanitized, but, but the older traditions, even the, the older Christmas cards and, and things like that, they give us a hint how Santa views naughty people. So, for instance, in Germany, there is Bell's Nickel. Some of you have heard about him or grown up hearing about Bell's Nickel. He carries a stick around with Santa. He's, he's kind of his sidekick in order to beat the naughty children straight. That's what Bell's Nickel does in Germany. That's very encouraging. There's also Neck Ruprecht. He's also considered a companion of St. Nick, and he will beat boys and girls silly with a bag of ash. So if you're naughty around him, expect, expect to get hit with a bag, which is certainly frightening, but nothing compared to Hans Trapp, who is in France. And I won't even tell you what he does, but you can tell he's got a whole lot of kids. He's grabbing in a basket and carrying them off. So not a good sign. Of course, by now, everyone has heard of St. Nick's very own Christmas demon, Krampus. Krampus. He is becoming increasingly popular. He'd lost his way in our society for a while, but he is the guy who comes in with St. Nick, and he bags up naughty children, and he carries them off to the netherworld. Uh, so Krampus is getting a bit of a resurgence lately, but you can see old Christmas cards where he was a regular companion of good old St. Nick. So it seems as if the coal and the fire imagery, along with punishment, is actually a normal part of our Christmas traditions which makes it really not too far off from the religious traditions all around the world. I mean, there are religious traditions that regularly speak of the judgment that comes on those who are bad. Really, in fact, almost all of the world religions will teach the same exact thing. Of course, with the difference being every religion has their own version of the naughty list which creates a whole lot of the ambiguity because no one really knows what naughty list we're supposed to listen to. You know, this one disagrees with this one, disagrees with that one. So how do you really know if you can get off of it what it would take? And that means 
that it creates a lot of ambiguity in the soul. In fact, try this out. It's a really fun Christmas game. Talk to the people that you're having Christmas with, you know, maybe your family or extended family, friends, neighbors at Christmas parties and ask them whether or not they know if they think they're going to be getting to heaven. This is a really fun conversation starter. <laughs> ask them if they think they're going to be getting to heaven. And what you, if you are willing to ask that question, you will get a whole lot of really interesting responses. You'll get a whole lot of, I hope so. I think I will. You know what? I've been pretty good this year. So I think I've got a good shot at it. But you will find a lot of ambiguity, a lot of uncertainty. Considering the stakes are so high being carried off by Krampus into the underworld, you'd think we'd want a little bit more security than that. So I ask it again. Are you sure that you are ready to get what you deserve from this all-seeing and all-knowing dispenser of justice? Are you sure? We've been doing this series called Christmas Carols, and the secular Christmas story, it seems, has this ominous and somewhat dark underbelly, which, of course, lines up with the, crisp, the, with the Christian biblical version of the story, which is also laced with some dark and foreboding threads. I mean, you can find lots of Mary in Christmas, but you will experience the most merry when you understand and really embrace the darker threads. In fact, it'd be hard to really appreciate the joy of Christmas without going through some of those darker regions first. So let's open up to Luke chapter 1, where in verse 67, as you're opening up there, I just want to give us a little bit of background because if you really want to appreciate the Christmas story, kind of how it happened historically, then you've got to go way back in history to the time of the Israelites. So the Israelites, they were the people of God, and they had rebelled against God. Now, God, of course, dearly loved them, and he had all of these, these plans for them to be this, this kind and good, a shining example of what it meant to follow God and to, to give them a purposeful existence. And yet the people continue to reject their God and do all sorts of very not nice things. And so God, because of this, had them thrown out of the land and later brought back, but under foreign occupation of their land. And these were very dark days. And the people were told by the prophets what it was that caused them to experience such heartache. Apparently, the prophets would tell them that every person was acting in greed, looking out for their own comfort and prosperity. They bought things that, you know, they didn't need, while others barely had enough to survive. With a lack of kindness, they neglected those who were hurting. It was in lust in sexual sin, that they hurt people around them and themselves. In anger, they bickered and argued with each other. In hypocritical self-righteousness, they looked down on people who were different from themselves. They were cold to foreigners. They dishonored their leaders. They neglected the elderly. They forgot to help the prisoners. And in selfishness, they thought that the only people they needed to look after were themselves and their family. 
And because they couldn't live up to God's perfect morality, to the goodness that God had set for them, God judged them. He gave them something worse than coal for their bad behavior. And now they found themselves, because of God's plan, under the rule of a brutal nation, the empire of Rome. Now, all along this way, the prophets had been giving them hope. For centuries, they had promised that God was going to put everything right and that he was going to do it by raising up a king, the Messiah. And this is what all of Israel longed for. And then all of a sudden, the prophets went quiet. That was it. For hundreds of years, the nation of Israel heard nothing from the prophets. Until a prophet here and there started saying, no, something is happening. Until the angels made the great announcement. Until the magi traveled from outside of Israel to the nation of Israel. And they said, today is the day. Now is the time that the prophecies will be fulfilled. God is going to do what God has been promising. His chosen king would come and save the people. And so, all of Israel, of course, longed for this king because they needed someone who would save them, someone who would break the back of their enemy and restore them to freedom. And now it was finally time. And while Jesus was still in utero, he, was still, he wasn't even born yet, a prophecy came to a man named Zechariah. It was John the Baptist's father. And that's where our text picks up, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation. That phrase, horn of salvation, it's a little unusual to us, but it's like a military idea. It's like, think of it as the tip of the spear. He's raised up the tip of the spear, Messiah. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That's a key phrase there, all who hate us. Go file that away to a little bit later on here, just all who hate us. Verse 72, to show mercy. Another key idea, go ahead and file that away, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here's the thing, all religions use fear to force good behavior on people. This is a key part. It seems like you go through all the world religions and they use some form of fear. How is it that you could ever relate to God without fear? This is one of the great mysteries that Christianity begins to unravel for us. But I get ahead of myself, so I can't, can't get into that yet. So this, so this should have been a tremendous bit of news for all who heard it. But this is also where some of the darker threads start to appear. Now, I want to draw some connections to a few different 
parts of the Bible. So I need you to kind of stick with me here. But you can open up now to Matthew chapter 1 and just kind of hold that for a few moments as I kind of just, I'm going to bounce around a little bit here and uh, try to draw some threads throughout different parts of the Bible for us. So you open up to Matthew 1, but I'm going to start us in Matthew 2. So when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. We're speaking about Joseph and Mary, the uh, uh, of uh, you know Jesus' fame here. He said, "Get up." He said, "Take the child and his mother, that's Mary, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him." When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, and this is a key idea, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. I mean, this is a tragedy of unbelievable horror. They call it the killing of the innocents. A ruler who uses the might of his position to rob a whole community of its children. And you know, there are times when we hear about things going on in the world around us and we just sit back. I mean, you'll read the news every once in a while, something just punch you in the face and you're like, I can't even understand this world we live in. Like this is just a horror beyond horror. How could this kind of evil, there's nothing else to call it, but how could this kind of evil rest in the heart of a person to do those kinds of things? That's the experience you get when you read a verse like this. It makes us wonder if something more is behind the evil. And of course there is. We see in the book of Revelation, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. So you're reading along in this apocalyptic literature, and this was written decades after the birth of Christ. And you realize, oh, that's what John here, the author of Revelation, is talking about. He's saying this is clearly the woman is Mary. The child, of course, is going to rule with an iron scepter. That's Christ. He's the Messiah. Herod must be the dragon. So it, of course, makes perfect sense. That's what happened. And so you see in this apocalyptic language that John is just describing what took place decades earlier. But then it suddenly goes in an even more threatening direction. In verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. By the way, Merry Christmas. I don't think I said Merry Christmas to you guys. Um, so I figured it's a good time to talk about Christmas demons. Um, so we're, we're reading this text and we come to understand here that there is this, in, this is great evil. Satan, that's a, it's a title. It, it's the accuser, the natus. He's the, he's the accuser. 
And he is behind the atrocity that Herod committed. But of course, it isn't just Herod. What the writer of Revelations told us was that Satan, who leads the whole world astray. Well, guess who's part of the whole world? I am. You are. And the deceiver leads the whole world astray. You see, it does not take long for us to realize that the seed that is in the heart of each and every one of us can grow into inexplicable evil. And you think, oh my goodness, is this even remotely possible? The same seed that was in the heart of Herod is the same seed of evil that finds itself in our own hearts. I mean, Jesus himself said this. He was talking about lust. He says, if you've lusted, you've already committed adultery. If you have anger in your heart, it's as if you're a murderer. That's what Jesus told us because he understands that the seed, listen, given the right circumstances, there is nothing that has been done in the world that we would not do given the right set of circumstances pressing us down the road. We have looked into, into modern civilizations and we have been horrified at what humanity is possible, what is possible for us to do. Yes, it ought to shock us because the seed of evil we find in each and every one of our hearts. And this is not nearly as outrageous as you might imagine. Philosophers and theologians and even cynics have wrestled with this simple truth that something is fundamentally broken in this world and when you trace it back to its origins, you find out that what is fundamentally broken in this world is us. It's here in the human heart that something is tragically wrong. The way a fantastic Christmas carol puts it, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy being sung in all of the malls across our great nation to save us from Satan's power because we have been led astray. That's what we need. This is why when the angel tells Joseph that Mary is going to have a son, the angel tells him, back in the text I had you open up to, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It couldn't be any clearer. This is the story of Christmas. It is the way we can best understand it. You see, what's wrong with the world is us. Because the enemy of God the deceiver, Satan. He has deceived and he has twisted us up so much that we are now deserving of God's wrath. Another writer says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is terrible news. If you have sinned, then you are in league with the Christmas demon. 
That's what he's telling us. And if you've done that, then you are firmly on the naughty list. But you see, this is where you have to go to begin to experience the true joy of Christmas. Otherwise, all of your experience of Christmas is still going to be superficial. It's going to be about warm fuzzies and family and snowflakes and snowmen. It's not going to be about the real joy and merriment of, of Christmas. You've got to go through this darkness and embrace it fully in your soul. And even this verse goes on to explain how that plays out. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's how beautifully simple the story of Christmas is really told. The reason that he came, God with us, Emmanuel, was to destroy the devil's work. Listen, unlike our, our holiday stories, Jesus isn't in cahoots with Krampus. He just isn't. He's not sitting up there threatening us with coal and brimstone and fire. He's not up there sort of trying to smack you around and, and get you back into some good behavior. It's quite the contrary. Jesus actually came to defeat the Christmas demon and to save us from his power and the penalty of our own sin and to, to offer us salvation from evil that is out there and the evil that it grows in our own hearts and to give us the forgiveness of sins as a free and an undeserved gift. To even the pinnacle of God's creation, the very pinnacle of God's creation will make it onto the naughty list. And I'm not talking about cats because we all know that dogs are the pinnacle of God's creation, created by God perfect, and yet still they sin. So I was reading this week, it was a great story. There is a family, they said they had set up their tree, and this is a true story, they set up their tree and they put all the gifts around it, and their dog, who was trying really, really hard to behave and be good, because dogs are created in the image of God, I think, no, just kidding, almost, nearly, and so what ends up happening is, in the middle of the night, while everybody was sleeping in complete silence, the dog went and one by one took every single gift from under the tree, dragged it through the house and out his doggy door into the backyard. Every single gift, he ripped everyone open, he ate every single thing that was edible and probably a bunch of things that weren't. And then he took all of the wrapping paper, the cardboard mixed in with all of the clothing and he made himself a bed in the backyard. <laughs> The dog's name, I kid you not, was Mercy. And the owners were saying if ever a creature needed mercy, it was the dog who ate Christmas. And it's not, he's not the only one. Lots of dogs struggle being good dogs when it comes to Christmas time. There's just something about it. The temptation overwhelms us, and in the end, you absolutely fell. <laughs> now there is another creature at the pinnacle of God's created order that also can't help himself and herself. You know, many of you think 
your perspective of God is that he's always sitting around out there waiting to smack some sense into you. You know, that's kind of how you view him. When you're bad, you know, he's telling you, you got to watch out, man. You better watch out. Don't cry. Stop pouting. I'm going to smack you around. Get you back into good behavior. That's your whole view of God. The reality is we are on the naughty list. If it were up to Santa, you'd be in Krampus's sack on your way to the underworld. But what we really need is mercy. We need mercy. And that's just like what the prophecy first said, the one that we first read in Luke chapter 1, salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. The Christmas demon despises you, wants you dead. And he came to free us from him so that we might receive mercy. Mercy. Every world religion teaches you that you can be good enough and then they confuse us with the facts as to how you can be good enough. And so it creates this ambiguity and you end up having to live in fear. Except biblical Christianity, which comes on the scene and says, your situation is way worse than you could have possibly Imagine. It stands alone in the world religions in this. It says you are, in fact, greedy. You are selfish. You are uncaring and hard-hearted. And you're whiny and complaining. And you're easily frustrated. And you focus on all of the wrong things. And yet, what does that carol promise us? Fear not, then. See, we can live and and abide with our Savior, with our God, with our Creator, without fear. How? You fear not, said the angel, let nothing give you fright. This day is born a Savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in Him. See, you can trust in Him. And this is so important. You know, maybe... You, you, don't under, you don't view saving in this way. You know, you might be thinking it more like the Israelites did, right? They needed saving from Rome. They needed saving from something outside. And maybe that's how you view it. You're like, you know what I need is I go after Jesus because I need a little bit of help in life. I have some anxiety and he helps me. I've got some crazy family and he helps me. You know, I, I've got some financial worries. He'll help me. I got some a sickness. He'll, he'll help me. I know that's the kind of saving I need. That's why I go to religion. That's why I go to Jesus. But if that's you, then you are missing out on the real Christmas story. Your primary need is not to be saved from something on the outside, it's to be saved from something on the inside. Which is why in our text in Matthew 1, it says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This is unbelievably important. And here's the reality for you. This is as plain as, as I can make it. You have an enemy of exceptional power and evil. Whether you, you believe it or not, you do. You have broken God's laws and you have hurt his people. And you have failed, up, failed to live up to God's perfect ways. And this is true of each and every one of us, whether you believe it or not. 
and you are simply not good enough to get on his nice list. This is something we just simply have to be able to accept, to trust that what he is saying is true. And when we do it, the hope that comes after that is unlike anything you could have ever imagined. Because there are persistent sins that will trip you up and there are bad thoughts that you continue to have and there are people that you've hurt and the ramifications of that sin it, it just it just ripples on for for centuries perhaps the things that we've done even today we don't even see these ripples but God does and he says you don't understand just how bad your sin and your rebellion is but fortunately you don't need to make the nice list because Jesus wants to put you on the saved list and when that happens the battle stops being about us trying to perform better but instead he takes up residence in your heart and he changes you from the inside and all of a sudden all of those patterns and things they get start getting turned around on the inside and you start becoming the very person that Jesus has called you to be not because of some fear of punishment, but as an expression of your unbelievable love and gratitude that you, a sinner, have been saved. There's a prayer of repentance. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a worship time here in a moment. There's a prayer of repentance that I want to encourage you to consider. Maybe you've never prayed a prayer of repentance like this before. Or maybe you have, but it really hadn't uh, sunk into the deeper places of your soul. But it's a simple prayer. It just acknowledges what we've been talking about here. It says, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve the consequences of my sin. However, I am trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that his death and resurrection provided for my forgiveness. I trust in Jesus, and Jesus alone is my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving me and forgiving me. Amen. For some of you, this might be the first time that you have prayed a prayer like that, and I would encourage you to consider doing that. And let this be the Christmas where you have fully and completely surrendered to the one who desperately loves your soul and wants to bring you to your eternal home. I'm going to ask you to stand as I pray. Lord, what we want is for your spirit to do a work in each and every heart here. Lord, there are people here who have never prayed a prayer like this, and I'm asking that they would pray it even now, that they would read it, that they would pray it, that they would offer it back up to you as, a, as an expression of their, their true heart before you. And Lord, there are others here who have prayed it before, they've surrendered before, but Lord, they have long forgotten what you've done for us. And so... Christmas becomes something other than it ought to be. It's not a time of, of praise and honor for you. It's not a time of reflection on what it meant for Emmanuel, for God to be with us in our midst and to still love us and to provide a way, a king who would fight off the power of darkness and bring us home. Lord, with hearts overflowing with gratitude, we want to stand before you today and worship. I'm asking, Lord, do this work in each and every person's heart here today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.